Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, the writer says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and a blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In Hebrews chapter 12, we've heard the writer's words of encouragement, of admonishment, to endure, to go forward in verse 1, to keep pressing forward in endurance in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 7, in verse 20. We're to bear up under trial, under the times of testing, when things are tough. In chapter 11, the readers remember the saints' walk of faith. And in chapter 12, the race we run... To encourage and embolden the Hebrew saints, the writer points to the example of Jesus in verses 1 through 4. And the assurance of God's love in verses 5 through 13. And if that's not enough, we can count on the power of grace that's been given to us by God in verses 14 through 29. We're running a spiritual race in verses 1 through 4. We sometimes experience divine discipline in verses 5 through 13. The discipline proves that we're children of God in verse 6. Proves God's love for us in verse 6. Produces peace and righteousness in verse 11. We are to live our lives in peace with everyone in verse 14. Pursue personal purity in verse 14. We're warned to watch out for bitterness in verse 15. We were given the example of Esau, immoral, godless. He despised his birthright. But in Christ, we've been given all things. We too have a birthright that's been given to us because of Jesus. And so the writer is going to contrast two mountains, Mount Sinai in verses 18 through 21 and Mount Zion in verses 22 through 24. These two mountains represent two covenants. One is old and one is new. These two mountains are best represented by two people, Moses and Jesus. Two principles the law of God, Mount Sinai, and the grace of God, 
which is Mount Zion. There's two visions. One produces terror. The other produces joy. And later the writer is going to solemnly warn the readers of the terrible results of unbelief in verses 25 through 27. And the Lord our God is both a coming Lord in verse 28 and a consuming fire in verse 29. So he begins with this contrast between the old and the new. The old covenant called saints to keep us at a safe distance in verse 18. It says, for you, for you have not, underlined that, have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that is burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. What's happening in that particular passage is we're given a picture of Mount Sinai. These are the sights and the sounds that took place at the giving of the law. And these events, by the way, are recorded in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 10 through 24. And if you're unfamiliar with Exodus 19 and 20, or Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 10 through 24, we, we see that when Moses went to receive the law, these strange and supernatural manifestations took place. From Exodus 19 to the cross of Calvary, the people of Israel were under the law, under the law of Moses. It was on Mount Sinai, the moral law was given, the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law was received relating to the types and symbols, the shadows, the pictures of the sacrificial system. But it begins with a contrast. For you have not come to that mountain or the mountain that may be touched or burned with fire. He's talking to the Hebrew Christians who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new mountain, and he's going to talk about that in just a moment. But he begins by reminding them of the fearful vision that the Old Testament paints of that event. What happened when God showed up at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law? It was a time of fear and terror. The mountain was covered with smoke and fire. And when the Lord spoke, the people trembled. Why? Why did God manifest himself on this, in that dark place at that dark time? And look at the words that the author uses. Fire, blackness, darkness. He uses the term tempest, but he might as well use the term storm. And the, the whole scenario and the whole environment gives us a picture of God's unapproachable holiness and perfection. He's using this dramatic language because the writer is reminding the readers of those who are tempted to return to the law for the Jewish person who wants to go back to Judaism and return to the law, the writer of Hebrews is making this powerful argument. He, he's basically saying, time out for a moment. I want to remind you of what the world looked like when the law was given. 
Don't you recall where the law was given? Mount Sinai. A literal mountain burning with fire, shrouded in darkness, covered with a thick, hidden, terrifying, violent storm raging all around it. And if that weren't bad enough, in verse 19, there's the fearful voices and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that they that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. It's very, very hard to help you capture the actual meaning of what is being said without looking at Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And I I obviously don't have time um, in this particular study, but I would encourage you, if you have a chance, go back and look at Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. And read it for yourselves. In particular, um, the circumstances that that are going on all around it. But I I do want to just read very quickly Exodus chapter 19 verse 9. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And he sets out the boundaries as he continues through the text. And then it gives a description of of the giving of the law and this terrifying circumstance that's happening. And so when it says in verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, what happened when the people saw the mountain? The, The thing that happened to them is they were experiencing, I guess for lack of a better word, a panic attack. It's hard to imagine just how terrified they are. And not only were they terrified by what they saw, they're also terrified by what they hear. As they're listening, they hear the supernatural sound of trumpets blowing and voices speaking from the storm. And with this terrifying vision and these terrifying voices, the people began to beg Moses. They pleaded with him. They begged him and pleaded with him to to make it stop. And in verse 20 it says, For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain... It shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. That quote, by the way, comes from Exodus chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. The idea is what happens when you approach the mountain? If you get close, you die. What happens if a dumb animal, an innocent animal... Void of comprehension, has no idea what's going on around it. It was to be put to death. How much more a human being who has comprehension, who can see and understand, who can see what's happening and understand what's happening. What will happen to the person who sees the vision and hears the warning and then fails to heed the warning? 
the idea is to create a sense of terror. Absolute, positive terror at the idea of approaching a holy God in your sinful circumstances, in your broken circumstances. In verse 21 it says, And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Again, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. Relating Moses' experience. Imagine the person who says, I don't have any problem approaching God. Really? Really? Yeah, you know, me and God, we're buddies. We're like this. Really? When you have a vision of the absolute, profound, unshakable, unmistakable, unapproachable holiness of God, according to this text, Moses was terrified. Now think about that for a moment. They're describing a scene that would make Chuck Norris melt. Now remember, Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. Too bad he's never cried. I'll go back to the text, sorry. I just, I just wanted to give you a picture of a person who under normal circumstances would seem to brave any circumstance. And that's the point that he's making. Moses is the mediator. Moses is the God that God has used to deliver them from Egypt. Moses is the mediator and the person who God is using in order to to help the children of Israel receive the law and occupy the land. He serves as the mediator, the link between God and the children of Israel. And it was Moses' job to make sure that the Israelites understood their covenant obligations. He appealed to God on their behalf. And Paul, the apostle, speaks of this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. I didn't write it down, but it says, In Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, that's Messiah, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. In short and in brief, the giving of the law was to serve To reveal God's glory. So when people ask, okay, well, tell me again, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, number one, was to reveal God's glory. Number two, to reveal God's holiness. And if you don't believe me, remind yourself, look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22 through 28. But it also served to reveal our sinfulness, our human depravity, according to Romans chapter 7, verse 7, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, James chapter 1, verse 22. It was to mark Israel as a chosen people. And people will often ask me, well, what are the Jewish people chosen for? 
They were chosen to be the oracles, the bringer of the revelation of God, the word of God. But remember, the chosen people were chosen to bring forth the seed, to bring forth the Messiah. So they bear the oracles of God. They were to separate themselves from the other nations, according to Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and all of Acts chapter 15. The law was given to Israel to be a standard of holy living and godly living so that they could inherit the land, enjoy the blessings, most importantly, to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The problem? Question, I'm going to ask you, just point blank. Did the Jewish people and the nation of Israel ever keep the law? Completely ever. Let's go one step further. Did they consistently and persistently break the law? The writer of Hebrews is reminding his Jewish readers that the old covenant in type and ceremony represents the Lord Jesus in his person and his work. And the writer of Hebrews has devoted this book in Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. He's over and over and over again reminding us that the visitation that God made and the representations and the types and the shadows became a type and a picture of Jesus. The law in the New Testament is called a mirror because it reveals our sin in James chapter 1 verse 22. A yoke because it brings us into bondage, Acts 15, 10 and Galatians 5, 1 and again in Romans 8, 3. A child trainer because it prepared Israel for the coming of Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. So think about this for just a moment. The law in the New Testament, a mirror revealing our sin. A yoke bringing us into bondage. A child instructor or teacher preparing us to actually be schooled by Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of it as letters written in stone, but the gospel of Jesus and the grace of Jesus is grace written in our hearts. And so he's going to make this contrast for the person who's saying, yeah, I want to go back to the law. I want to be guided, instructed by the law. But the writer of Hebrews will say the new covenant, just like the old covenant, actually was designed in such a way that we had to keep our distance from God because our sin is so profound and his holiness is so apparent. He says the new covenant calls saints to draw near. It winds up doing exactly the opposite of what the law did. In verse 22 it says, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. And again, we're struck by the contrast. The law, a fearful vision 
grace, Jesus, Mount Sinai, a faithful vision. The contrast, what happens when it's Jesus in your life? And by the way, we've come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the heavenly city. Look just at, I'm going to give you a sneak peek in verse thir- or chapter 13. If you just turn the page of your Bible, and maybe some of you it's, it's the same page. But in chapter 13, verse 14, it says, For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 26... Mount Zion is called the heavenly city. Instead of smoke and fire and darkness and storm, we have a high priest speaking a message of love and grace. Instead of obscurity, we have clarity. Instead of darkness, we have light. We dwell in the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand something. I just want you to pause for just a moment and think about what the writer is saying and the circumstances that are about to take place. Physical Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The 10th and 12th legions of of Vespasian and Titus, they're going to surround the city. According to Josephus, almost a million Jews are going to be killed. The temple is going to be taken apart stone by stone. One of the soldiers of Titus is going to throw a flaming fire brand into the temple, the curtain is going to burn, the gold is going to melt from the sides, the soldiers are going to remove it and loot it and burn it to the ground. Physical, earthly Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. But heavenly Jerusalem is going to remain forever. And so the believer hasn't come to a stormy mountain, but to a haven of rest. Instead of a stormy mountain, we've come to the mountain of grace. It was the hymn writer A.M. Toplady who wrote, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. People have sung about this situation where, again, the old covenant postponed judgment covered our sin but the new covenant brought grace remember the opening words in the the gospel of John the law came by Moses grace and what truth came by our Lord Jesus Christ The writer of Hebrews is telling the Hebrew Christians, we have arrived in principle where we will one day be in reality. Tweet that. We have arrived in principle where we will one day be in reality. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Then heaven is your home. 
It's where you will wind up. Our present condition is also our future reality. On earth, we have heaven. And so the blessings of Jesus are contrasted with the burdens of Judaism. And our attention is drawn to where we live. You may not think of it this way, but Mount Zion was the place of security. It was the pinnacle of Jerusalem. Remember what David wrote? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. Mount Zion on the sides of the north is the citadel in the, in the holy city. And so it speaks of security. It's, think about this for just a moment. Jerusalem is a strong city. And the strongest place in this strong city is the citadel of Mount Zion. In the ancient world, for those of you who are even somewhat familiar with English culture or the story of England, London had a tower. It was called the Tower of London. It was built as a citadel in order to sustain attack. In our own Colorado... We have a place called Cheyenne Mountain. Some of you are familiar with it. Cheyenne Mountain is a cave that's built into a solid stone mountain. Why do we have NORAD in the middle of a stone mountain? It's to protect against attack. And so the picture for the reader of the book of Hebrews is that this place is a place of safety. This is a place of security. We've come to the place where the living God dwells, the heavenly Jerusalem. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were in a garden, but we've been placed in a city, God's city. There's no city like it. In reference to its place, secure. In reference to its people, redeemed. In reference to its purpose, it exists. This place exists to make sure that you're secure and you're safe forever in Christ. So he talks about the secure place. He talks about the redeemed people. He talks about its glorious purpose. We also embrace a glorious company. We're a part of a glorious company. The writer speaks of, of three groups of spirit beings in the heavenly city. The host of angels who minister to the saints. The church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The Old Testament saints. Just men made perfect. And so in verse 23, it says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. He's describing the people who live with you forever. The word, the general assembly, 
meant a gathering for public feasts or, or festivals in the Jewish culture. And so there's something else about this passage that I can't escape its meaning. When he speaks of the general assembly, he's talking about a gathering of joy. This is contrasted with the Old Testament, the law and terror. This is a group of people who gather together and celebrate, enjoy. The writer spoke of an innumerable company of angels in verse 22. The expression innumerable company is all one word in the Greek language. It's the Greek word myrias. Some of you are going to be familiar with that word. We get the word myriad from it, which speaks of an innumerable amount. It literally meant in, in the original language Ten thousands. Now that may not seem like a whole lot to you, but in the ancient world, 10,000 was a lot. And so it literally means ten thousands and so thousands of thousands. And in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in hyperbole, sometimes in, in hyperbole, it means vast numbers. And I think that that's the meaning here. But I want to remind you of something in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Were the angels present when God gave the law? According to the Bible, yeah. The sounds, the voices, the trumpets. Remember the reoccurring theme both in the Old and the New Testament when an angel shows up? Almost immediately, whenever you read in the Bible about an angel appearing, the next thing you read is, and they were sore afraid. Because it was a terrifying experience. But instead of terror, there's joy. Why? Because we're brought into the presence of angels. Why? Because we're redeemed. Why? Because Jesus has redeemed us. Why? Because he loves us. The general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, it says in verse 23. So one of the groups who are with us are angelic beings. The other group that is with us is the church in every generation. And Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Our Jehovah Witnesses friends want us to think that that means that he is the first being who came into existence, but nothing could be further from the truth. When the Bible says that he is the firstborn, it means he is the first person to rise from the dead, never to die ever again. In the book of Revelation, Jesus self-describes himself as, I am the one who was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. The Lord is, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first to rise from the dead. The church is comprised of believers who are heirs with Christ and promised a permanent resurrection from the dead. What's interesting to me in the NIV, they, they're called the joyful assembly. I like that. 
Instead of the terrified group, they're called the joyful assembly. And no one has, no one has seen the glorious church in all of its fullness. When Jesus rose from the dead and Peter preached and people came to Christ, in every single generation, men and women have been called out of darkness into light. They've been called to, to believe the gospel and trust Jesus as their savior. According to the Bible, we're still building. With each saint, we add to this permanent building called the church. God in his sovereign knowledge sees the church complete. God in his sovereignty sees from the, from the moment that, that, the, that the church is formed and, the, and Jesus says that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. He marches throughout eternity until he sees the final saint making the final decision to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. And the church age is over with. And then he tells us about the Old Testament saints. Here he calls them just men made perfect. <laughs> He's giving them a picture of heaven and who's there. Do you remember the song? Some of you are old enough to remember. When the roll is called up yonder. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. The roll seems to be the roll call that we've just talked about. We belong to this glorious company composed of angels, composed of saints in the church, composed of, read it for yourself, the spirits of just men made perfect. Who are these people? I'm going to suggest to you that this is Adam and Eve. I'm going to suggest to you that this is Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the parents of Moses, Moses, Joshua and Israel, Rahab, the many heroes that are talked about in verse 11. These are the Old Testament saints from before Noah, after Noah, during Abraham, after Abraham. In what sense have they been made perfect? I suspect that this is a reference not simply that they're in heaven in a resurrected body, but rather that they have a perfect standing before God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Wearsby cites chapter 10, verse 14, and chapter 11, verse 40. In chapter 10, verse 14, he says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And in chapter 11, verse 40, we read, And God, having provided something better for us, that they should yet not be made perfect apart from us. Again, perfect in what way? 
There is a perfection that comes when you're accepted by God in Christ. And then there's a further perfection that comes when your mortal body is raised as an immortal body. And even in the passage that we've just read, we can't forget the expression that the writer of Hebrews uses, to God the judge of all. What do we say to that? What should we say to that in, in relationship to, to what we've just seen? John Phillips writes, quote, God has already judged us at the cross because of Christ's work. We're pronounced justified. What an amazing fact. We live in God's presence, in the presence of his character, of all things as judge. We have no fear, no dismay, no apprehension, no sense of shame or loss or guilt for not the slightest stain of sin, not even the faintest memory of guilt remains. So perfect is our justification that we can bask in the presence of him who from the face Heaven and earth itself will run away from his holiness. But you get to stand before him. Washed. Cleansed. Justified. Chosen. Accepted. I love that. And in verse 24, look what it says. To Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Think about what you just read. Included in the glorious company, our Lord Jesus himself. Our Lord Jesus, he's the mediator of the new covenant. The word mediator, by the way, in my translation in the New King James Version, is capitalized. I think it's because it's an ultimate reference, not just a verb or an adjective that describes a role, but I think in the sense, in part, it means a title. Mediator means go-between. Thayer explains that the word means more than go-between, but includes the idea of restoring peace of restoring friendship, of restoring relationship. It's a word that describes two parties that have been broken, that have been estranged for one another. And so the idea seems to be either to renew a, a friendship or restore peace or make a contract or make a covenant. And so the idea is that the death of Jesus restores harmony between God and man, a harmony that was disrupted by sin and destroyed by rebellion. And Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He initiates this covenant on the basis of his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Hence, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. On what basis does he draw up the contract? His body is the contract. His blood is the signature of God permanent, indissoluble. 
And so how does the sacrifice of Jesus speak better than the things, than that of Abel? I think that the meaning is this. Because one of two things is being spoken of here, or maybe both. It's either speaking of the sacrifice that Abel made in chapter 11, where it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He offers a sacrifice that's accepted, or it's a reference to his own death. If it's a reference to his sacrifice, then I think what it means is that when Abel was killed, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, you remember. It was loud enough that God could hear it. But that the sacrifice of Jesus is even louder. And even clearer. The sacrifice of Abel was a type and a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. And the type is never more important than what it represents. And the shadow is never as bright as the light itself. And even though the sacrifice of Abel is pleasing to God. Because it's offered in faith and it's offered in obedience. The sacrifice of Jesus is also pleasing to God. Because it also is offered in faith and obedience. But it, it, it is louder and longer. The the sacrifice of Abel could only serve as a temporary covering, but the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus brings redemption in chapter 9 verse 12, forgiveness in chapter 9 verse 26, complete salvation in chapter 10 verse 10, cleansing from sin in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 where it says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But if this is a picture of the murder of Abel, like I said, the blood cries from the earth for vengeance in Genesis 4.10. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus doesn't simply cry from Calvary. It speaks forever. Now think about this for just a moment. The blood of Abel cries for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and cries out for grace. The blood of Jesus says, give them grace, give them mercy, give them grace, give them mercy. Let them come, give them grace, give them mercy. Now again, contrast the fearful voice of the law and the faithful voice of grace. The old covenant by Moses. The new covenant by Jesus. The old covenant brings death. The new covenant brings life. The old covenant brought to an end by Jesus. The new covenant eternal by Jesus. The old covenant enslaves. The new covenant makes free. The old covenant leads us, leaves us imperfect. The new covenant makes us perfect. The old covenant reveals sin. 
The New Testament covers sin. The Old Testament fails to bring life. The New Covenant can't bring anything other than life. Jesus has come so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. The Old Covenant abolished. The New Covenant enforced. The Old Covenant, you live by works. In the New Covenant, you live by faith. The Old Covenant, a shadow. The New Covenant, substance. Old Covenant, many priests. New Covenant, one priest. Old Covenant, earthly priests. New Covenant, heavenly priests. Old Covenant, earthly tabernacle. New Covenant, heavenly tabernacle. Old Covenant, law written on tablets of stone. New Covenant, law and grace and mercy and forgiveness written on your own heart. Old Covenant, letter. New Covenant, spirit. Old Covenant, tabernacle made with human hands. New Covenant, tabernacle made by God. Old Covenant, for Israel only. New Covenant, for everyone. All men, all women. Greek, Roman, slave, Free, black, white, old covenant, old, new covenant, fresh. John Phillips tells an amazing story of a preacher in a southern congregation who waxed eloquent in prayer over this very passage in Hebrews. He prayed, Lord, we are come to the mountain of Zion. And one of the people, a wrinkled old lady, cried out in ecstasy, Glory to God! Lord, we come to the city of God. Glory to God, cried the old woman. Lord, we're in the heavenly Jerusalem. Glory to God, she said. Lord, we come with a multitude of the angels. Glory to God. We're enrolled in heaven, Lord. Glory to God. And, and Lord, he said, lifting up his hands, Lord, we aren't fit for such a home. Glory to God, cried the woman. That's a lie. she was right. We're brought into this company as justified men and women. Read it in the text for yourself. We are there as justified people. The spirits of just men made perfect. Read it for yourself in the text. In verse 23, when it says the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. When I read that, I thought about, do you know when people get married, they register somewhere? They register at Target. They register at 
coals. They register at bed, bath, and beyond. My wife and I, we, we registered at Walmart. I know, isn't that just the saddest thing you've ever heard? But in Christians, you're registered in heaven. The registration has already been made. You're registered in heaven so that everything that you need will absolutely be there when you get there because you've been chosen, you've been adopted. You've been accepted. The old covenant wasn't by faith. But the new covenant is the law of faith. The old covenant brought bondage. But the new covenant brings liberty. In Galatians 5, 1, it said that the old covenant incarcerates it brings bondage but the new covenant brings freedom in the biggest sense that that word gives to us freedom from sin freedom from condemnation the presence of joy the opportunity to walk in freedom and in hope. Do you understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell the Hebrew people? Why would you go back to bondage? Why would you go back to fear? Why would you go back to darkness? Why would you go back to distance when you have light and love and friendship? in Christ let's pray Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for this passage and for this book Lord even though it was written almost 2,000 years ago to a group of Jewish people who were hurt and tired who were experiencing trial and difficulty and the constant temptation to go back to a way of life just to avoid pain and suffering. And Lord, I know that we as Christians sometimes are tempted to go back to an empty life, to go back to a dark life, to go back to a bruised life, to go back to a fearful and terrifying life. And why would we do that, Lord, when we have you and there's freedom. Who in their right mind would choose death over life? An imprisonment over freedom. Who in the world would pick despair over hope? And so, Lord, again, we commit our lives afresh to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. And that we can walk as men and women of faith into a future 
that you've set aside for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And all the saints said, let's stand.